Just a warning, Classified, the podcast, may contain content which is distressing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode six and the last episode of season one of Classified, the podcast. My name is Catherine Ray Robinson and I'm your host and I'm here with our producer, Simon Shipley. Coming up on today's show, we are going to be looking at something I am very passionate about and that is the Kennedys. We're going to be looking at the assassination of JFK. In a Q&A, we're going to be looking at the controversial topic of capital punishment and whether or not prisoners can be rehabilitated. I don't know. But coming up next, we're going to have a look at the tragic tale of Alison Baden-Clay. You're going to want to hear this one. It would be hard to find an Australian who hasn't heard of the tragic tale of Alison Baden-Clay. Six years ago, it was hard to turn the TV on without being bombarded with photos of her and details about this case. Alison Baden-Clay was a 43-year-old woman who was reported missing by her husband, Jared Baden-Clay, in April of 2012. Jared told police that the last time he saw his wife was the night prior to reporting her missing when she was watching TV and he went to bed early. He said that his wife had gone on an early morning walk the next day, but never came home. A wide scale search was being conducted by police into Allison's disappearance. And Jared was speaking to the media outside his home, talking about the toll this whole ordeal is taking on their three daughters and how he trusts that the police are doing everything that they can to find his wife. He also releases statements thanking the public for their support and how his wife's welfare is his first priority. Two days later, a canoeist discovered a woman's body on a creek bank under a local bridge. Police soon confirmed the body was Allison's and that the case was being treated as a homicide from that point on. Jared comes out as devastated, says he's now just trying to provide some stability for his three kids. His parents go as far as to lower the Australian flag in their front yard to half-mast following the discovery of her body. In the meantime, police have already narrowed their sights on people closest to Alison as they believe her murderer was someone known to her. On June 13th, Jared talks to the police for hours and his lawyers say that he's expected to be charged with her murder and interfering with a corpse. They also say that he will be vigorously defending the charges against him. When he was charged, he applied for bail and he was refused as the judge believed he posed a major flight risk. It was found in Allison's journal that her husband had been having a long-term affair with one of his co-workers, and this meant that he was probably more likely to flee the country. I want to go through some of the key evidence in this case, which led the police to believe that Jared was responsible for his wife's murder. Firstly, the state says that his motive for killing her is because he wanted the insurance payout and to be able to have a life with his mistress. 
The most damning evidence for me in this case were the scratch marks on the right side of Jared's jawline. He claimed they were shaving cuts from the morning that Allison was reported missing. But if you look at the marks, they look absolutely nothing like the nicks you might get from a razor and definitely like the marks fingernails breaking skin might make. Forensic experts also felt this way and testified that the marks were made by Allison during some kind of fight with her husband. Over 40 witnesses testified about hearing screams the night Allison was last reported at home. A forensic accountant also testified saying that Jared's net financial position was about $70,000, but he owed around $300,000 to a variety of family and friends, playing into the idea that it was likely about money to some degree. Also, Jared reportedly told his mistress, Tony McHugh, to lay low following Allison's disappearance and that he couldn't afford a divorce from Allison, giving some more weight to the idea that he probably did kill her for financial reasons. After the trial, the jury found Jared guilty of murder, not just because of the overwhelming evidence against him, but also because of his behaviour after her death. He moved her body... He attempted to conceal its discovery and misled police and a host of resources in a fake missing person investigation. Dr. Claire Ferguson from UTS in Queensland had a lot of insights into the research area of staging a crime scene, which is exactly what Jared did. She said that only three to eight percent of all homicide offenders manipulate evidence at a crime scene in an attempt to deliberately mislead investigators and avoid detection. Most people who did do it often killed an intimate partner or someone that they knew very well. Jared was sentenced to life, but there was an appeal and he somehow ultimately got his conviction downgraded to manslaughter rather than murder. The judge allowed the jury to decide whether or not they believed that she died in a premeditated and planned way, or if somehow during a violent altercation between the two of them, she suffered an injury which accidentally killed her and they went with the latter. Many people were outraged by the sentence being reduced to manslaughter, which ended up being a minimum of 15 years in prison due to the nature of the crime, but he is eligible for parole following that 15-year sentence. After her death, there was a charity foundation set up in her name, which funds the education and awareness about domestic violence and family violence. So it is nice that there was one positive which came out of such a tragic story. Coming up next, we're going to be looking at something that I'm very, very passionate about, and that is the JFK assassination. Just a little fun fact about me. I am strangely obsessed with the Kennedys. It might make me sound like a nutcase, but it's true. I am in love with all things JFK, Bobby Kennedy, Jackie O, and the whole Kennedy clan. Earlier this year, I went on a trip to the East Coast of America and I got to visit their 
family compound in Hyannisport in Massachusetts. And since then, my love for that family has just grown. So much so, I actually opened myself up to potentially being shot by a sniper on the property because there's this little sort of hip high fence on the beach. It's like a white picket fence that um, surrounds the property. And I crawled myself over just to touch and stole a shell from the beach inside the property. That's how psycho I am when it comes to the Kennedys. I just had to bring something home. So I did. And that's on my dresser just every day having a peek at that. Given this love affair with the Kennedys, I thought a great and jam-packed topic that should be talked about on the podcast is the assassination of John F. Kennedy. For those of you who have no clue what I'm talking about, JFK was the 35th president of the United States and was assassinated during a presidential motorcade with his wife, Jackie, in Dallas, Texas of 1963, two years into his presidency. The president's car is now turning onto Elm Street and it will be only a matter of minutes before he arrives at the trademark. I was on Stemmons Freeway earlier and even the freeway was jam-packed with spectators waiting their chance to see the president as he made his way toward the trademark. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. Parkland Hospital, there has been a shooting. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. I repeat, a shooting in the motorcade in the downtown area. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. This is Alan Jackson reporting from CBS News headquarters in New York with a bulletin on an incident which just occurred in Dallas, Texas, where President Kennedy is visiting. President Kennedy and Governor John Connolly of Texas were both hit by a would-be assassin's bullets as they toured downtown Dallas in an open automobile a short while ago. Uh, the Associated Press in its first report says that President Kennedy was shot just as his motorcade left downtown Dallas. Mrs. Kennedy, who was riding with him, jumped up and grabbed Mr. Kennedy and cried, Oh no! The motorcade sped on. While on the open-top motorcade, the black car turned around a corner and went past the Texas School Book Depository where three shots were fired from the sixth floor. Two shots hit Kennedy, one in the face and the other in the back and through his throat. The fatal shot was the headshot. If you haven't seen the footage, I'm going to creepily recommend that you YouTube it right now because you can see the whole thing and it is unbelievably hideous. The third shot hit the Texas Governor General John Connolly, or so we are meant to think. Kennedy was taken directly to Dallas Hospital, where he was pronounced dead 30 minutes later. A man named Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested for the president's assassination and was confirmed to be a lone gunman during the commission into President Kennedy's death, which is known as the Warren Commission. Oswald was shot 48 hours later after his arrest by a man named Jack Ruby. The commission also found that Ruby acted alone in the murder of Oswald. At the time, the Warren Commission report into President Kennedy's death actually was received quite well and people seemed to buy what they said. Stats showed that before the release of the report, 52% of the American public thought that he was killed in a conspiracy, and subsequent to the report, 87% of Americans believed that Oswald acted alone and shot the president with no other co-conspirators. 
Years following the report, critics decided that they weren't so happy anymore with the findings, particularly a man named Jim Garrison, who was a New Orleans district attorney. He launched an investigation of his own, which uncovered a great deal of controversy and scepticism. If the name sounds familiar, Kevin Costner played Garrison in the movie JFK, which goes into this whole aspect of the conspiracy if you're as big of a fan as I am. Garrison and other skeptics ended up realizing that the findings of the commission had heaps of inconsistencies. There were heaps of contradictions between witnesses about the amount of shots that were fired. Some say it was three, others say it was four. There was some incredible footage of the assassination that I said earlier, which was used as evidence at the commission. Over the years, this footage has caused problems because the government likes to explain away a suspicious noise that many believe could be a fourth shot heard over the tape. Here's where I'll dive into something super important. The book depository is where the shots were that were fired were said to have come from, and most people don't dispute that. However, there was this elevated patch of area to the right front of the presidential limousine, and this area is known as the grassy knoll. Some witnesses say that they heard another shot coming from the grassy knoll and people were rushing away behind it. This leads into my favorite topic of discussion, the magic bullet. So the Warren Commission stated that Oswald fired three shots in 8.6 seconds, which in and of itself is kind of far-fetched just because he used an infantry rifle and each recycle took time and there was a huge tree blocking the sixth floor window at the time. So to shoot two potentially, well, one was fatal, but the other one could have been fatal in that time would have been tricky for a trained shooter, let alone Oswald. But anyway, the magic bullet plays into the idea that there was a fourth shot from the grassy knoll. This is because according to the commission, the bullet that shot Kennedy in the back slash throat is also the shot which hurt the Texas governor. For this to be true, the bullet had to shoot Kennedy in the back, exit through his throat, bounce to hit the governor, breaking his rib, then bounce to his wrist and then end up lodging in his right thigh. The bullet in his leg was almost entirely intact and it's impossible that one bullet's trajectory could be the bullet that caused all of that damage. Obviously, if the governor and Kennedy were shot by different bullets in a fraction of a second, then this proves Oswald couldn't have been the only shooter present. After all of this doubt was shown on the commission's findings, as well as the lies of Watergate and the war in Vietnam, polls showed that most Americans now believe that rather than the Russians or the Cubans, which were being thrown around as being involved in his assassination, the government was likely a conspirator. There were theories surrounding the involvement of the following president, Lyndon Johnson, the FBI, the CIA, the Pentagon, maybe the KGB, pro-Castro forces, but nothing ever seemed to stick. There were rumors that Oswald was just a scapegoat for the government as he was driven by his fidelity to the Cuban revolution at the time and wanted to gain Castro's respect, maybe travel to Cuba, look like a hero, that whole situation. 
All I can say is that this would have been a great story to spin for the American government, so he would have been an incredible scapegoat if in fact that was what took place. The public began to want all of the Congress files on Kennedy's assassination to be open for everyone. They agreed, but only to release them over a 25-year period. That period ended in October of last year, 2017. The doubt surrounding Kennedy's death and the people responsible still remain, though, as some of the documents were found to be very redacted and the small percentage weren't released at all, showing Americans and the rest of the world that we may never know what really happened on that fateful day in Dallas. Coming up next, we are going to be talking about the very controversial topic of capital punishment in our Q&A. Time for our Q&A. The first question, what is your opinion on capital punishment? I go, I've, I've gone backwards and forwards about my opinion on capital punishment, but I think I'm against it. I think I'm more against it than I am for it, mainly because I think you can't take it back. And even if there's just, you know, 0.1% of a chance that that person might be innocent, I mean, executing a potentially innocent person is a really scary thought and it's final, you can't bring anyone back. So I just feel like it's it's a big risk in some cases where, you know, someone might be falsely convicted. I also think depending on the crime, of course, but if you've if you've landed yourself on death row, you've clearly done something pretty horrific and, you know, murder, rape, both aggravated burglary, something along those lines. I think you should rot in prison. <laughs> that might be a bit of an extreme response for some people. Some people think that they don't deserve to live and I get that as well, but I don't know. There's something satisfying if I was a family member or a close friend of, of someone who was killed and knowing that they have to spend the rest of their life in prison is would be a very comforting and gratifying thought for me rather than, you know, they just get to they just get to die. Then it's it's not really suffering in my opinion. I think it's I think it's done. I've heard lethal injection is pretty horrific though. I don't think it's you know you go it goes in and it's like night night. I think apparently it's quite a painful way to go. But I still I still I still rest on the fact that I think that they should rot in prison. But I would love to hear your opinion. So send us an email at classifiedthepodcast at gmail we would love to read them. Now, question two, do you think prisoners can be rehabilitated? Yes. Short answer is yes. I think they definitely can. One of the main purposes of prison is in an ideological sort of world is, is rehabilitation, you know, with the intention of letting them out one day. But I think it depends on the prisoner. I know there's been heaps of studies done on um, terrorists in prison and often they kind of come out worse in the sense that when you stick them in a confined space with other radicalised people, often they can come out with more hatred than what they had when they went in. So, I, and you know, they make friends and 
all that good stuff. So I feel like they could come out worse. So in that sense, you know, sometimes no. Um, pedophiles is a really interesting thing to look at because for some reason our society still thinks that pedophilia is something that can be corrected and it's not. Pedophilia isn't something that can be reversed or erased from someone's brain. Their pathways and their um, neurons are fused a certain way and once they're fused, that's it. You can't unfuse them. We still don't know how to do that. So they really do need to be locked away for lack of a better way of putting that away from society for the rest of their life because they can't be rehabilitated. So putting pedophiles in prison, even in and of itself, might not be the right answer because they, yeah, they will never be, they will never be let out. So I think that's why institutions in some, in some ways can be good because I know we don't have a lot of those in Australia anymore, but pedophilia obviously is something that can't be rehabilitated. So I don't think prison is the place for them. I think that most prisoners, you know, obviously white collar crime, that can all be, you know, they can all be rehabilitated and released back, which is great. I think, you know, a lot of crimes of passion, even murder, um, you know, I hate to say that, but a lot of murders, most murders, most homicides are committed in uh, a, a rage rather than something more sinister and premeditated. So I even think that some murderers, believe it or not, could be rehabilitated once they've paid their debt to society. I think even then they can be released one day. Well, that's it. That's the end of season one of Classified. I can't believe it's over. I'm quite sad. I've really loved this whole process. If you want us to come back for a season two, you need to go onto the podcast and rate us and chuck us a comment and let us know if you liked this season and we can get a gauge of whether or not you want us to come back for another one. Thank you to Simon. He's been the best. I couldn't have done this without him. It would have been really awful and poorly done. So you can thank him for the quality of this podcast. 